Today's reading is from Romans 8, 12 through 16, 26, and 27. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. By him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. But if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You can take that down, babe. Yeah. Happy Mother's Day. One of the best moms I know, my wife right there. Um, this is the kind of day where I'm going to take my jacket off because uh, about three minutes ago I completely changed this sermon. So it's about to get real right now. Um, and I've changed it because on Mother's Day, happened to be the day that I left the house and got angry and snapped at my children and made one cry, maybe two, I'm not sure. And just sense that need for God's grace over my own life, just sense that need for these words that you are adopted in Christ and what that means. Maybe that is good news for somebody else in here this morning also. And so I just want to pray right now together that the Holy Spirit would use these words as words of truth in our life right now that would actually free us into a whole new realm of uh, being the beloved of God. Thank you for the gospel. It's this reminder that Jesus, you came into this earth and you didn't give a bunch of principles, you gave yourself as a person. You gave yourself to choose people and gather them to yourself, people who are very flawed and who struggle and who wander in this wilderness and who are constantly dependent on you and reach out to you for grace and wonder if you're still there and find you're still loving us and forgiving us and drawing us and even working through us and we, have, we just don't even deserve that and we're just so thankful for your work in our lives. And we ask that this morning would be a time, we, we don't wanna come here and jump through a bunch of hoops and do a bunch of antics. We want our hearts, our souls to be truly transformed by this this thing called the grace of God, this love of God. We want to behold your beauty this morning, Jesus. And so we ask that you would do that in our lives today. And we pray this in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, now that I thoroughly freaked you out, um, 
We're going to continue in this section that we uh, just read. And this past week, we had some family members that reached out to us. Uh, they reached out to us because uh, they were going through incredible hardship. Uh, this particular family member's husband had been going through ongoing health issues and was afraid that the night that she had texted us that he would have to return to the hospital yet again for more respiratory situations and issues that were happening in his chest and in his lungs. And they've been having intense difficulty with their kids. They have five children, three are their biological children, two of them they adopted from a family member who had severe uh, mental health issues and who had some severe addiction issues. And so they adopted these young little baby girls at a very young age to rescue them from a life of unknown, uh, not belonging, uh, living without love, all of that sort of thing. The problem is that the daughter, one of the youngest daughters, has been acting out again lately. She's been stealing, and then she's been lying to cover that up. She's been acting out in very destructive behaviors, as often happens for children who, at a young age, experience extreme abuse. And um, even though she has a brand new family that has shown her love and has given her everything that she needs on a at least a very basic level, like food and clothing and nurture and care, this young girl has not lived a life that's been free of her former story. And I wish that there was some magic wand that they could just wave over her to relieve her and free her from the old story, the old narrative of enslavement that she still is plagued by. And I wish that there was a wand that could be waved over me a lot of times to free me from the old narrative and the old stories and the old forms of enslavement that still plague me at times. Because the truth is, just like her, I too, as a follower of Jesus and having trust in Jesus, I've been adopted, according to this section of scripture, into a new family of Christ. And I haven't been given a spirit of fear or slavery, but I've been given a Holy Spirit by which now I cry out to God, Abba, Father. I have this intense, intimate relationship with God now. You'll notice in verse 15, he says as much. He says in verse 15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Now, before you might find offense at the fact that he's just using the word sons here, imagine this ancient culture where sons actually received all of the inheritance. Everything that belonged to the father is what typically went to the son predominantly the firstborn son. And he says, you haven't received a spirit of fear You've received a spirit of adoption to sonship, and by him you now cry out, Abba, Father. As a follower of Jesus, I've been adopted into this new family of Jesus. As a follower of Jesus, you have too. You no longer have a spirit of slavery or fear, but you 
now have a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. But the truth is that old narratives still act out in ways that enslave you, don't they? If you're like me, you still find yourself believing in, being certain, enslaved into certain patterns of thinking, patterns of behavior, fear, worry, whatever it might be. And this is what Paul means by being enslaved to the flesh. When he talks about slavery and flesh, his original audience would have immediately understood that he's talking about Israel's journey through the wilderness. In fact, Paul says, verse 12 through 13, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We have an obligation, Paul says. Now, to a a culture and a community that's largely afraid of commitment, we've been called commitment phobes, or this generation has been one called commitment phobes, this word obligation is pretty scary, isn't it? But Paul says you have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh. Now, the word flesh has nothing to do with your skin or your body. Sarks, in the original language, meant a life dominated by the false self and sin. It's the sin-dominated self. Paul says the flesh has done us no favors. We owe nothing to it in return. It's never satisfied, right? When we're tempted to give in to any form of selfish behavior or selfish ambition, does it ever stop? Is it ever fully satisfied? No. It's a monster that always craves for more and more until it's ravished some part of our lives or some part of our relationships. And Paul said, if you let the remaining sinful nature alone, if you allow it to prosper and grow, there will be terrible trouble. If we try to appease, if I try to appease my sinful cravings, I'm simply inviting death, not once more as an arbitrary punishment, but as the direct consequence that will happen. And in the wilderness, Israel continued to feed their flesh. They were slaves for 430 years until God sent a deliverer to free them from enslavement under Pharaoh's cruel tyranny. And he invited them into, he pulled them into a journey towards freedom, a journey towards the promised land, which was known as Canaan. But it was in this wilderness that Israel continued to feed their own flesh. They constantly gave room to grumbling against God and one another. They gave in to ingratitude. They always wanted more. When times got rough, they quickly turned from trusting in Yahweh and his appointed deliverer and turned toward whatever deities seemed to be working for the surrounding culture. Oh, we need to be free of any forms of army. Let's worship the God of the armies. We need better weather. We'll worship the sun God. Whatever it was, they continued to worship some counterfeit God that surrounded their culture. They participated in pagan sexual escapades. Rather than appropriately acting out their sexuality, they stole hoarded possessions for themselves and they experienced death and many times they wanted to give up and go back to Egypt where they had been in slavery. It always seemed easier. 
They found that if you live according to the flesh, though, you will die on many levels, just as Adam and Eve experienced death in a physical, emotional, spiritual, and relational decay. And in the wilderness that we live in, a current fallen world, the lure of flesh remains so strong. That's why Paul says, in order to fulfill your obligation now, that you have now been entered into a life of no condemnation in Christ. There is therefore, he says in verse one, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And a life of no condemnation leads to a life of obligation to live in loving union with Jesus. And Paul says, in order to fulfill your obligation and live in loving union with Jesus, you need a vision and an intention. You have to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Mortification is the word that earlier theologians used to put their flesh to death. They've said, if you mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. That's ancient King James language. I feel super spiritual for using it. And mortification means a ruthless, full-hearted resistance to anything that grieves the spirit. I was confessing the very thoughts and the things of the thoughts of condemnation and self-condemnation that I was having just before coming up here because of a very difficult morning. And my friend who was praying for me says, okay, you can't entertain those thoughts anymore. We're done right now. The moment you walk out of this room after we pray, you're putting to death those thoughts. You can't play with those anymore. It was a reminder that, oh, I have a choice right now. I can either choose to entertain this or I can mortify the deeds of the flesh, which actually bring death. In the original language, the very word translated, put to death, is a single word. It's violent and it's total. So a vision of resurrection demands an intention of mortification, totally rejecting anything and everything that disregards the way of Jesus, anything that kills the fruit of the Spirit in my life, as John Owen, the Puritan, said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. What do you need to mortify today? What do you need to mortify? What is killing fruits of the Spirit in your life? Love, joy, peace. What's strangling patience or self-control? For me, I'm sensing the need to kill the sin of self-pity and entitlement. I sense the need to kill the sin of grudge-holding and loving the praise of people more than the honor of Jesus. I'm sensing the need to kill the sin of treasuring comfort and control over compassion and mercy. And it means I have to kill the sin of believing the lies that God is not good and that I'm not worthy of God's love. And it means I need to kill the sins of covetousness, which Paul says in Galatians is idolatry. You need to decide today. I'm going to make a decision about that behavior, that attitude, that action. I'm not gonna let it ravish me or my relationship with God or others any longer. I'm going to mortify it. Just as in the room that I was being prayed over, my friend said, okay, after this, those thoughts are done. 
some or all of these. Now, we then begin to ask the question, how? How do we do that? And you have to be careful here because when I hear those words, mortify the deeds of the flesh, it's easy for me to turn from the gospel toward law. I start to give myself law-centered mini-sermons like, well, if I do that, God will get me. Or if I do that, I won't get what I want from God. Or (laughs) it's against my Christian principles to do that. Or it will hurt people around me to think in that way. Or I'll be embarrassed. Or I'll hurt my self-esteem. Or I'll hate myself tomorrow. Those are all law-centered mini-sermons that we give ourselves all the time, and they only leave me feeling what? Condemned. Because I ultimately can't live up to it. Some or all of those thoughts might be true, but Paul tells us that they're totally inadequate to bring lasting transformation and change because they actually don't kill sin, they just kill shameful behavior. That's not what frees you to fulfill your obligation of living in loving union with Jesus. That is taking your temptation to the law and using fear to deter yourself. Instead, we are called to use the inverse logic of the gospel of grace on our souls to free us and melt us in such a way that love is what's leading me, not law. How do we use intention when we live in a wilderness of temptation to mortify the deeds of the flesh? Well, Israel had a cloud of, uh, a pillar of cloud by day to lead them, and they had a pillar of fire by night to guide them. But as followers of Jesus, you have neither of those. Do you know what you have? You have the Holy Spirit. You have the indwelling presence of God convicting you and saying, son, it's not okay to speak in that way. It's not okay just to try to control the things that you can control, which are little humans. And as a result, you're choking out, you're experiencing death. Christians will often be tempted to give up the struggle and go back to Egypt, to the place of slavery, even though we've left it behind, Paul says in Romans 6. We've left it. It's it's over. There are many times when it would seem so much easier to be enslaved to sin again, though. No more battles. No more sense of an uphill struggle and no more inheritance to look forward to either. No living presence of God. No sense of companionship with Jesus. And Paul says, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery, did you? To go back again into the state of fear. A life of fear is not a life in submission to the spirit. Because he didn't give you a spirit of fear. He says, of course not. Don't be surprised if the way is hard and stony just like it was in the wilderness on the way to Canaan. It's always like that when you go from Egypt to Canaan. It's always like that when you go from exile to kingdom. There are hard rocks along the way. There are painful struggles. Painful times when you're disappointed with yourself, when you experience and feel disappointed with God, you feel disappointed with others. That's to be expected. 
As followers of Jesus, your means for mortification or putting to death the spirit of the flesh and all of those surrounding emotions that are constantly swirling is none other than the spirit of adoption. Look, he says in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds or misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him, now you have the kind of relationship with God that you just cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. To put your trust in Jesus means that you now have a whole new identity. You've picked up Israel's identity in the wilderness, the identity that they were given as adopted, chosen children of God. When the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in a person's life, the first sign is that they recognize God as Father. On the cross, when Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time he's using the word God. It's the only time he's not calling God Father. Why? It's as if he's sensing the distance of the Father because of the sin, your sin, that he's taking upon himself. And he's taking that sin, willingly being cut off, so to speak, from his dad, so that you can always be brought near to your heavenly dad. Roman adoption could be conducted at any age. And here's the amazing thing about what Paul's saying when he's talking to this culture about adoption. At that time, Roman adoption would cancel all previous debts and relationships. You know what that means now? If you've been adopted into the family of Jesus, the ways that you've behaved this morning, those debts are canceled in Christ. Is that not good news? It defined a new son or daughter wholly in terms of their new relationship to their father. They have a brand new last name as We're told in Revelation, you'll be given a new name in the new creation or the new kingdom of God. And thus, they become the heir of the house of their father. They receive everything that goes to the other kids. And you know what? Verse 17 of this section says, we are co-heirs with Christ. Do you know what that means? It means that every good thing that goes to Jesus for his perfect and righteous life is also going to you. You have an inheritance that is reserved for you eternally. That means this life is not all there is and it's not the best there is either. It means that the best is yet to come. This is both startling and liberating, this kind of language. It's startling to realize that, contrary to popular opinion, and I'll probably offend some right now, but it's just what's being said here. So I'm just going to say it. 
not everyone is a child of God. Paul says in Acts that we are all offspring of God, and throughout scriptures, starting from Genesis leading to Revelation, every human is made in the image of God, therefore loved by God, therefore we are to humanize every single person on this earth. But John says, to as many as those who received Jesus, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. There is a process of adoption by which you enter into through faith, and that actually is what includes you into the new family of Jesus. And so what Paul is saying here is that sin can only be cut off at the root. When he starts with the word therefore in verse 12, he's saying, look it, I want you to go back to this understanding, this reminder that Jesus is raised from the dead. And you now live a life of union with the resurrected Jesus. And the same spirit that is lived through Jesus is now living and pulsating through you and will raise you up at the last days as well to have the same physical body, not marred by sin or physical decay or death anymore. Therefore, he says, put to death the deeds of the the flesh. Sin can only be cut off at the root if we constantly expose ourselves to the love of Jesus for us. Why? Because the love of Jesus is what stimulates a wave of gratitude and a feeling of indebtedness. One translation says, therefore, we are in debt, not to the flesh, to fulfill its lust, but to Christ. We are debtors to follow Jesus And sin can only grow in the soil of self-pity and a feeling of oddness. In other words, you start to tell yourself, I'm not getting my fair shake. I'm not getting my needs met. I've had a hard life. God owes me. People owe me. I owe me. That's the heart attitude of oddness and entitlement. And Paul says, you must remind yourself, Al, that you have a debt, an obligation, because Jesus has paid your debts. And only that grace will loosen and weaken and kill the sin at the motivational level. Now, I want to talk, what are the privileges of being an adopted child of God? I'm going to rattle off a handful. And then we're going to move on and continue our worshiping of Jesus. The first is security. Notice in verse 15 when he says, you haven't been given a spirit of fear or slavery, but one of sonship. How does it bring security? Think about it. An employee or a servant basically obeys out of fear and punishment of a loss of job or a loss of status. But a child-parent relationship is not characterized by the fear of losing that relationship especially if you've been adopted. You're like, do you know what I've done to actually bring you in? Do you know what it's cost? It was intentional. I'm never letting you go. It brings incredible security. For those of you who are wondering today if Jesus still receives you because of where you've been, what you've thought, ways you've acted, this doctrine of adoption as children of Jesus brings first security. It secondly brings authority. Verse 15a says, you're not a slave, you're a son. How does it bring authority in my life? Think about it. In a house, slaves have no authority. 
In the ancient Roman world, they were paying off their debts. That was what indentured servitude was. But children had all the authority under their parents. They were given authority (laughs) over all of the property. And what it's saying now is as an adopted son of of, of the father through Jesus, you now have been given authority over sin, over Satan. And as children, you are to move about in this world knowing that it belongs to your father. There should be a confidence and a poise about that. Because as children, we have the honor of the family name. And it's a crazy, incredible new status that's conferred to you. Thirdly, this doctrine of adoption tells us that we have intimacy with God. Verse 15b says, whereby we now cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba was an Aramaic word which is best translated, you know it, Daddy. It's a term of great intimacy. Abba was the word that was used familiarly by children talking to their parents. My daughter texted me this past week, uh, my oldest daughter, the one with the phone. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) She texted me and she says, Hi, Father. Just want to let you know. I said, No, no. It's Dad. I didn't really text back, but I thought about doing it. (laughs) He uses this term, Papa, Dad. You have the Spirit of God now that pulsates through you. And whenever you talk to God, it's so close and intimate that you can just turn to God right now and say, Papa, here's where I need you. Here's where it hurts. It's a very strong word, and clearly the apostle has used it very deliberately He's using it to speak of a loud cry, a deep emotion, a real knowledge and intimacy with God who is no longer distant, no longer a God who's one merely that you believe in intellectually or theoretically or doctrinally. Instead, it's a a spontaneity, a, a, a relationship of intimacy. Also, this doctrine of adoption gives us assurance Verse 16 says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's assurance. That's assurance that when you blow it or you mess up or you feel like you're not living up, that when you cry out to God as Abba, the Spirit of God somehow comes alongside of you with your spirit and gives you assurance that you are truly a part of this new family of Jesus. And then lastly... This doctrine of adoption gives us an inheritance. This is probably one that has been most difficult for me to grasp my mind around because I can't really see it. It's hard for me to imagine it. Verse 17 says, Now if we are children, then we're heirs. This means that we have an incredible future. In more ancient time, the first child was the heir, as we mentioned. And it was often only the son. There might have been a large number of kids, and all the kids were loved, but the heir got the largest part of the wealth and carried on the family name. And it's what kept the influence of the family intact so it didn't divide or dissipate. And in breathtaking turn, Paul says, when he calls all Christians heirs of God, he's saying, this is a miracle that you now 
share in the lion's share of the wealth of your parent. Paul's saying that we have in store, what we have in store is so grand, so glorious, that it will be and feel as if each one of us had gotten most of the glory of God. There's only been one book that I've ever read that's made me weep while reading it. It was a book that I read with a group of high school students back when I used to be a, a student pastor years ago. And it was a book called The Ishbane Conspiracy. It was the second book in this small little series. And it was similar to the C.S. Lewis book that he writes about one demon writing to another demon how they're going to basically jack this person's life. And as I read this book, it was about a young man who was caught up in gangs and certain addictions, and, and the demons were writing back and forth to one another how they were going to keep him stuck, how they were going to keep him enslaved in this pattern of living. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit is continuing to work, work, work through his people, work through his friends, work in this guy's family life, even in his hardship. And one day, he has a conversion experience whereby he's adopted into the new family of Jesus, just like many of you were at a particular moment in time. And then he dies. He's in a car accident, tragic one, at a young age. And his friends and family all gather around in the hospital room. And they're frantically working over his body. And all of a sudden, it says that this young man, his name is Rob, he can see himself. He's outside of his body, and he sees his body. And he sees the doctors working over his body, and he sees the lights of the hospital room. But there's another light that's calling him, as happens a lot of times at near-death experiences or the stories that... They talk about, and slowly, Rob begins to walk toward this radiating light, but he realizes it's not radiating from a place, it's radiating from a person. And this is what began to give me an idea of this inheritance that we have in Christ for the first time. If you want to close your eyes and just listen to it for a second. Rob thinks of his loved ones as he begins to let go of this hospital light and begins to embrace and walk towards the radiating light, but everything within him wants to dive in and lose himself in the person's radiance and cross the threshold to the great adventure that had beckoned him ever since childhood. He feels like a child again, no weight of the world, no disillusionment with others or self, just like a childlike preoccupation with an object of wonder. And I don't have time to explain the brilliance of the moment, the musical symphony that he begins to enter into, the dancing melodies, the outrageous colors that Rob experiences as the voices of the hospital room begin to fade. But the author says Rob felt right on the verge, on the verge of something magnificent, something that he would gladly give everything to step inside of. And the music kept getting louder and louder. And he noticed that it wasn't just one voice of the person with arms spread wide. Thousands, maybe millions of voices melded with his. And Rob's eyes were set on the person. Not a person, the person. He felt an intense yearning in his heart, like a thirsty man who's seen cold water becomes even thirstier the instant before drinking. The old world, that colorless world of grays, began to fade. But as it faded, another world took shape. 
a world so perfectly defined, so glorious beyond expression that all he could think was, this is the real world, the one I was made for. He felt like a hungry man standing in an orchard full of a hundred different fruit trees, wondering which fruit to grab first to bite into. He reached out wildly to grasp whatever he could lay hold of, the shadowlands, the world of grays that he had lived in was disappearing. And now he was seeing the substance that cast those shadows, shadows he once imagined were the ultimate reality. The figure became brighter and brighter, yet didn't hurt his eyes. The one who'd at first seemed a shadow was now bathed in light. More than that, he was the source of light. He stretched out both of his arms, human arms, yet much more than human. A bubble of laughter erupted from him and also within Rob, and he felt like a tuning fork that was vibrating furiously in the presence of the one perfect sound. Rob ran toward the light, leaving behind nothing but his body, his former body, that is, only to be further clothed in his, clothed in his new resurrected body. He saw a sea of people, many of whom he recognized and who were waiting to embrace him into the new world, and he turned around in circles, amazed by the beauty of it all. And when he could finally speak, he yelled out, at last, this is it. The crowd cheered. Rob felt he was going to burst with pleasure. Nothing in his wildest imagination prepared him for this. Rob felt he was going to burst with pleasure. His eyes fixed on the one coming toward him, the bright shadow. He glowed, not as in the paintings that Rob had seen, where the light appeared as a separate manifestation from his being. This light did not come from him. It was him. Not a display, but his essence. The light was love and strength and grace and truth. And the bright shadow walked with arms outstretched again. And Rob noticed first the striking profile and second his scarred hands. Rob looked down instinctively at his feet. They were disfigured. Not like the paintings. Not normal looking feet with a dot of red or a neat, manageable scar. They looked as if they'd been torn, flesh ripped from the inside, though through bearing a weight as great as the world itself. With a startled grasp of realization, Rob fell to the ground. This was he who spoke the cosmos into existence with but a word. This was he who carried wood up a long, lonely hill to die for those who hated him. And Rob felt two strong hands under his arms, pulling up his dead weight. Finding his legs, he stood before the Ancient of Days. He looked at him, and possibly in the eyes, he felt unworthy, yet loved and complete. Whatever had been always missing fell into place like that last 20 pieces of a puzzle he'd been tempted to give up on. At last, you're the person I was made for. Made for and by for. I've prepared a place for you. I've prepared you for this place, Rob. The bright shadow, who is now a bright substance, hugged Rob tightly, then lifted him up in the air effortlessly and spun him around. Yes, I am the person, and this is the place, the object of your deepest longing. And he put Rob down, and he put his arm around his shoulder. You're going to like it, Rob. I've been building it for you, and I know how to build. I'm a carpenter. Rob tried to speak, but he couldn't. He knelt down again and laid his forehead on his Savior's scarred hands. 
And moments passed until he looked up in his face again. The carpenter smiled and pulled him a second time, and he said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Paul says, that spirit who you have inside of you, he says in verse 26, in the same way the spirit also joins to help in our weaknesses. Because we don't know what to pray for as we should. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches the hearts knows the spirit's mind because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Thank you, Jesus, for these promises to us. And thank you for your forgiveness. And thank you that you help us in our weaknesses. And If there's anything that I've said that is detracting from who you are and your beauty, I pray that you'd let it fall. And I pray that you fill us with a sense of your nearness to us now, Lord.